at the time of recording this podcast, there's a good chance that there will be some breaking news from the European Union. We'll find out soon, hopefully later on. And they're trying to decide if they want to be able to make a price cap on Russian gas that's coming in. But until then, we also noticed today, at least on Wall Street side of things, that they're not too happy with the jobs report. They had, there was like something like 200,000 plus jobs added. The market went down for a bit and uh, treasury yields, I think, went up too with it. So Wall Street didn't like the fact that there was more jobs created. A, a very common pattern if we have noticed here on this channel. Today, some articles that we're going to cover. First off, we got some more news from Elon Musk and Tesla. First off, the first one has to do with Elon and Twitter, and he suspended an account on someone. And kind of big news because they kept saying for the longest time that he wasn't going to be good for speech on the platform. And then we also have news from his Tesla side of things as well for his company with the semi-trucks and what's coming coming about because of those. Then we got some news from Toyota. Toyota is making the push to be able to go into hydrogen fuel cell cars. And we'll get into that later in today's podcast as well. Then there's some very interesting news from Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is now investing more into nuclear energy. And what does that mean going forward in the energy markets? And we'll end today's podcast by talking about OPEC Plus, as OPEC Plus is still considering to make a deeper cut on oil based off if there's a proposed price cap in the making. And we'll get into that in a minute. So with that being said, I have to remind you all that I'm not a professional advisor in any way, shape, or form. Everything I talk about in this podcast is for information purposes only. You need to do your own research before investing as you're not guaranteed to make money when you invest in the stock market. Please also know that I am not a financial advisor in any way, shape, or form. And everything I talk about in this podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. You need to talk to your financial advisor as they understand your situation a lot better than I would. And your financial planner can actually plan for your future to be able to figure out what to do. Please also advise that this is not legal financial advice in any way, shape, or form. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. With that being said, let's begin today's podcast. Elon Musk suspends Yee's Twitter account after the Swastika post. Okay, From CNBC, Yee's Twitter account was suspended again Friday for violating the social media's platform rules on incitement of violence, CEO Elon Musk said. The rapper, formerly known as Kanye West, appeared to post an image of a swastika, a symbol symbolizing the Nazis inside a Star David, a prominent symbol of Judaism. Musk said he tried the, his best to respond to Yee's tweet, which can no longer be viewed. Despite that, he again violated our rule against incitement to violence. Account will be suspended. Yee's tweet came after he made an anti-Semitic comments in an interview with the controversial radio host Alex Jones on Thursday. Yee referred to the Jewish media, and he said he saw... Good things about, and I'm not going to say that man's name, the former chancellor of Germany during World War II. In an hour-long conversation with the conspiracy theorists. In October, Twitter locked Yee's account for the unspecific amount of time following a string of anti-Semitic remarks, which escalated into threatening and hateful comments about Jewish people. He returned on Twitter in November. And now the deal is off. After suspension in October, Yee agreed to buy conservative social media company Parler. In a world where conservative opinions are considered to be controversial, we have to make sure we have the right to freely express ourselves, he said in a statement released by Parler at the time. But on Thursday, Parler said the deal to be bought by Yee has been called off. Yee's anti-Semitic outburst had led to major commercial partners scrapping deals with the rapper. Adidas ended his partnership with Yee last month, while Gap and Foot Locker said they removed products from the rapper's Yeezy brand from their stores. Musk has been reinstating, as well as blocking accounts since his $44 billion takeover of Twitter, he allowed former President Donald Trump to take on the platform last month. The billionaire Tesla CEO, who called himself a free speech absolutist, 
is finding the limits of the of that tested in his early days of owning Twitter. Verified service. Musk has attempted to make sweeping changes in his first few days in charge, including gutting a huge swath of Twitter's workforce and launching an $8 per month verified service that would allow users to buy the converted blue checkmark. You know, it's good to see that Elon Musk is keeping his word and at least keeping up with Twitter's policies. It's also going to be interesting going forward to see how he enforces it with other platforms and what they're saying. I mean, there has been a lot of controversy in Twitter these last few years with what's been happening on their platform and why certain accounts have been banned and some haven't been. And so this is a looks like a good step in the right direction, making it known that you make inappropriate remarks on Twitter and you will be banned. That's how it should be. It shouldn't be a one-sided political argument at the end of the day, though, and that's what I believe Twitter has become. I mean, Twitter for the longest time, I wasn't even on the platform. I got back onto the platform because when you when you work on podcasts, they're, they kind of encourage you to try to post on Twitter as much as possible. And so I had to reactivate my Twitter account and pretty much start using it. But what's also interesting, too, with this whole ye being suspended thing, ye might be disappearing soon. And honestly, okay, he's lost his brands. He's now... Losing his, he might, he might lose followers on Twitter at the end of the day, but he might also gain some. And usually the people he'll gain are probably like the ones you don't want to be around on Twitter as much as possible. But Yi is probably going to be forgotten very soon. And honestly, in time, he's going to be, it's going to be one of those moments where in a few years from now, you might have a chance to see like, remember this artist back in the day? And it'll be Yi. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to him at the end of the day. But at the same time, I'm just happy that Twitter is starting to live up to its policies. You know, it's also going to be interesting too, is because of Twitter doing this. That means companies like Facebook, Instagram, any other social media platform, pressure's on on them now. And if they don't have the same guts as Elon does currently right now, there's going to be a lot of angry people on those platforms in the making. So Elon's taking charge and Pretty soon, in my opinion, social media companies are going to have to follow that as well. Continuing on, Tesla CEO Elon Musk kicks off the semi-truck deliveries. Tesla CEO Elon Musk kicked off deliveries of the company's first few production semi-trucks on Thursday, speaking on stage at the company's factory in Sparks, Nevada, with Dan Presley, the company's senior manager for semi-truck engineering. As CNBC previously reported, Tesla set up lines and started production of the semi outside of Reno this year at the site where it primarily makes the battery cells, drive units, and battery packs that power its cars. Musk and Tesla didn't not say on Thursday how many semi semis it is delivering. Tesla originally showed off the semi design in December of 2017. Production got delayed by the COVID pandemic and battery cell supply issues, among other things. During the deliveries kickoff event, Musk briefly alluded to the tumult of the past five years and, and quitted. Sorry for the delay. He later thanked and then handled and then handed the mic to representatives from PepsiCo Frito-Lay, which is Tesla's first customer to receive and use product production semi trucks. You know, actually, we'll get into that in a second. One major difference between Tesla's Class A offering and the heavy-duty trucks is the location of the steering wheel and the driver's seats. Rather than using the left side or right side in Europe, Tesla designed the semis with the steering wheels in the center of the cab with the touchscreens positioned on both sides of the driver. While the Tesla Semi was in development, other fully electric heavy-duty tr trucks launched into the market. Volvo's own trucks and Daimler have, have produced and delivered 
electric heavy truck duty trucks to consumers before Tesla, even uh, Nikola, I think it is, whose founders are ousted and convicted of fraud in recent months, started production of the battery electric truck back in March. But Tesla boasted some of its high-tech features not available elsewhere, including a new fast charging system and a battery with greater range and competitors. The DC's fast charging system delivers up to one MW and employs a based a water-based coolant to ensure that it's safe in delivering that power. Tesla says that the semis can travel up to 500 miles on a single charge while fully loaded. The new fast charging tech will eventually be installed at Tesla supercharging stations and used to power up cyber trucks. The customer picked up uh, truck Tesla is planning. Musk revealed the company plans volume production at the Sharp Edge Heavy pickup at its new factory in Austin, Texas. You know, th- I mean, this is good news. The, the trucks are coming out from Tesla. Don't know how successful they'll be. Interesting how PepsiCo, though, is the first company that's going to be using them. So it makes me wonder how much longer until you're driving on your local freeways or local roads and you're seeing a Pepsi truck drive by and it's one of Tesla's trucks. Okay. What I want to know is this, though. As someone who sometimes has to travel for for volleyball tournaments that I have to participate in, I wonder how they're going to have to put the charging stations out in the middle of nowhere. And all honestly, okay, because right now, I believe last time I checked driving up the I-15 when going to Las Vegas last time, there was no charging stations at some of the rest stops that the truckers had. Maybe that's something that Tesla will do first is end up going to those places. Now, granted, I don't get to travel everywhere and maybe there are in places and I'm just not seeing it as much. But the charging stations would have to be start being put out in those areas where the truckers do drive currently right now, especially if Tesla is going to be the potential leader, at least in my opinion, in the making. What I also want to point out too is this. I wonder if the trucking industry is going to change now because of this. So think about this. Tesla is one of the few manufacturing companies that is doing self-driving and actually being successful at making self-driving trucks or not just trucks, just cars in general. Other car, other car companies are trying, but it sounds like they're not doing as hot as they would like to. I wonder if the trucking industry is going to say, okay, if you're a truck driver, you have to drive X amount of hours and we also want you to keep the truck on during your times off, right? Or something like that. Or maybe they can say, hey, we want you to travel an extra hour and just have the truck drive by itself, but just make sure you're behind the wheel just in case. And all honestly, I'm curious to know if the trucking industry is going to change because of it. Or maybe these trucks just stay in the cities and they just use them in the cities in general and that they're not used out when you're going across the country. Who knows at the end of the day, but it's still, the world's changing. It's fun to see what technologies is coming, but the world is changing, whether people like it or not. And it's just becoming really fascinating to see what's happening. But speaking of potential changes in the making, Toyota secures funding to develop hydrogen fuel cell version of its Hilux pickup in the UK. Okay. From CNBC London, a consortium led by automotive giant Toyota will receive millions in funding to develop a hydrogen fuel cell pickup truck in the UK. In a statement Friday, Toyota said its fuel cell powered prototype of its Hilux pickups would be developed a at its plants in uh, Berniston in the East Midlands of England. Toyota's Motor Manufacturing UK is heading up its uh, uh, consortium, which is being backed up by 5.7 million, which is roughly around 7 million US dollars of industry fundings at 5.6 million from the UK government. Uh, Thatcher Research, DH2 ETL, and Ricardo are also involved in the project. 
Although the initiative is being led by TMUK, Toyota said technical support would come from Toyota Motor Europe R&D. With, with the scope of the funding bid, initial prototype Hilux vehicles will be produced at Berniston during 2023, it added. Once successful performance results have been secured, the intention is to prepare the vehicle for small series production. Fuel cell technology involves hydrogen from a tank mixing with oxygen, which in turn produces electricity. As the U.S. Department of Energy and Alternative Fuels Data Center notes, fuel cell electric vehicles emit only water vapor and warm air producing no tailpipe emissions. The original versions of the Hilux dates back to the 1960s and after several irritations of the, ve irritations of the vehicle have been developed since. The UK government said a fuel cell Hilux would be ideal for use in isolation settings where electric vehicles charge is impractical. Friday's news represents Toyota's latest move in the sector. The firm started working on the development of fuel cell vehicles back in 1992. In 2014, it launched the hydrogen fuel cell sedan. Alongside with Miriam Toyota, it had handed in the development of larger hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. These included a bus called a Sora and prototype heavy duty truck, as well as a fuel cells Toyota is looking at using hydrogen in international combustion engines. While the business is known for the hybrid and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, it's also attempting to make moves into the increasingly competitive battery electric market where firms like Tesla and Volkswagen are just are jostling for position. Okay, here's what I find interesting. I think fuel cell technology is a very, very interesting concept, in all honesty, okay? I get it's cleaner for the environment, and I also get that it's helpful to be able to, I guess, do that, do this because it would save the environment. But at what cost, though? Okay, you know we've talked about on this podcast recently that they canceled a like making a plant in Huntington Beach, California, for desalutation, and now you have a company that's making hydrogen fuel cells for cars. Okay, this is what I don't get. You are using a precious resource like water in a way to be able to provide transportation, okay? Remember, they sometimes use corn, and I think they sometimes known as ethanol in our gasoline. Sometimes when we are at the gas pump, okay, they use food to make gas. Now, we as humans are going to be using water for our cars, a precious, precious resource, okay? It's always said that when the next major war happens, that water would probably be the biggest thing. It could be. Water is a resource. And we're using the resource now in our cars. That's a terrifying thought in the making. What happens if there's a drought? What happens to your car then? Can you drive it anywhere? What happens if you have water restrictions? Because we've had water restrictions a lot in California, especially the last couple of years. And if you have years of drought, I mean, you're not going to be able to drive anywhere. It's just one of those things where in certain states, this might work out well. Like, for instance, like if you lived in the state of, oh, let's just say, I guess any state on the Mississippi River in general, there's a lot of water that comes from there. Most of the, like, east of the Mississippi River, there's a lot of rivers running through those areas. Especially, like, for instance, like Illinois, for instance. Illinois is kind of like a swampy environment, so there's a lot of water around there. But why are we using water? In all honesty, I know, it's, I know it's called hydrogen cells, but it's just mind-boggling to think that we're going to be using a resource that humans need every day to, to have transportation. People won't talk about it now, but eventually it will come up. And I can almost guarantee you, I can't 100% guarantee you, but I can almost guarantee you that it would become a political issue. Water would eventually become a political issue in the future. 
because we're trying to make hydrogen cells for our vehicles. So, but companies are going to do what they want to do at the end of the day. So, continuing on, why Silicon Valley is so hot on nuclear energy and what it means for the industry. Venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and other tech hubs are investing money in nuclear energy for the first time in history. That is changing its trajectory and pace of innovation. There has been a resurgence of nuclear power ever since the heyday in the late 1970s. Ray Rothrock, a longtime venture capitalist who has personal investment in 10 nuclear startups, told CNBC. Now that's changing. I have never seen this kind of investment before, ever. Jacob DeWitt, CEO of Micro Reactor Startup, OK Low, say that the landscape has changed dramatically since he started raising money in 2014. When he was part of the Y com, 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 sorry, the Y Combinator startup inco, incubator. Sorry, incubator. More investors are interested, more investors are excited by the space, and they're getting smarter to do so with diligence. And now what do we do here? Which is good, DeWitty told CNBC. The surge in private investment will be positive for the industry, agrees Johns Parsons, an economicus and lecturer at MIT. Quote, I think having fresh perspective is really good, Parsons told CNBC. Nuclear energy is a very complex science and has been supported by the federal government and the national labs. And so a very small circle of people. And when you broaden that circle, you get a lot more new minds, different thinking and a variety of experience. In an in industry, there can be a groupthink or narrowness in the way are done. things are done over time, Parsons said. With private investments in space, there will be out-of-the-box thinking, he said. Maybe that out-of-the-box thinking doesn't produce anything useful. Maybe it turns out that the old designs are the best, but I think it's really wonderful to have a variety of takes. Not everyone is optimistic, and the recent influx of venture dollars will lead to progress. Investors have also invested in stupid things that didn't work. A professor of the history of science at Harvard University told CNBC, because the reality is that in the 75 history of the technology, it has never been profitable in a market-based system. If investors are putting money into nuclear now, that's because they think they can make money. And I can only think they believe they'll make money because they think that there's a big opportunity to have the federal government picking up the bag, uh, correction, picking up the big part of the tab. Okay, this is one of those things. I've studied a lot of the energy markets currently last few years. And that's one thing I have noticed too is when the U.S. government is willing to pick up a lot of the stuff, this is why a lot of solar companies make money. A lot of solar companies, and, and from what I've researched, I'd have to look at it again, but I just remember looking at solar companies and being like, solar companies don't make a lot of money, or they don't make money, any money at all, okay? And maybe this is the time for nuclear to shine, because if you think about it, we are having an oil crisis on hand because of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And all honestly, all forms of energy should be used in some way, shape, or form, okay? I mean, there probably will be a way to make money of nuclear energy, but I just don't know how that's going to work in the long run. But, I mean, we need energy in general, and we and beggars can't be choosers. Now, what I don't get, though, with nuclear, too, is if this is the time to be profitable, what happens if the war... of between Ukraine and Russia ends tomorrow. Does all that money just run out of nuclear? And all honestly, probably would, because then they a lot of those a lot of that money might end up going back into the tech sector at the end of the day. But I just don't see how nuclear right now is going to be considered a profitable thesis. I do agree with that statement. I mean, I just don't see it right now. We need someone who's a lot smarter to be able to explain to me how this could happen, but we do need energy and we do need energy badly. And here's a statement why, okay? 
OPEC Plus is to consider deeper oil output cuts ahead of Russia's sanctions and proposed price cap. OPEC and non-OPEC oil producers could impose deeper oil output cuts on Sunday, Energy Analysis said, as the Influential Energy Alliance weighs the impact of a pending ban on Russians' crude exports and possibly price cap on Russian oil. OPEC Plus, a group of 23 oil-producing nations led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, will convey on Sunday to decide on the next phase of production policy. The highly anticipated meeting comes ahead of the potential disruptive sanctions on Russian oil, weakening crude demand in China, and mounting fears of a recession. Senior Vice President of Analysis at Energy Consultant Ray Stan told CNBC that OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, that he believes that the group would be better off to stay the course and roll over existing production policy. OPEC Plus has been rumored to consider a cut on the basis of demand weakness, specifically in China, over the past few days. Yet China's traffic nationwide is not down dramatically. Energy market participants remain wary about the European Union's sanctions on the purchase of the Kremlin's seaborne crude exports on December 5th, while the prospect of the G7 price cap on Russian oil is another source of uncertainty. The 27 nations EU bloc agreed in June to ban the purchase of Russian seaborne crude from December 5th as part of the concrete effort to curtail the Kremlin's war chest following Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Concerned that the outright ban on Russian crude imports could send oil prices soaring, however, prompted the G7 to consider a price cap on the amount it will pay for Russian oil. No formal agreement has been yet reached through the Reuters reported Thursday, and EU governments had tentative agreement to $60 a barrel price cap on Russian seaborne oil. The other factor OPEC will need to consider is indeed the price cap. It's still up in the air, and it adds to the uncertainty. The Kremlin has previously warned that any attempt to impose a price cap on Russian oil will cause more harm than good. So much uncertainty. OPEC Plus agreed in early October to reduce production by 2 million barrels per day from November. It came despite calls from U.S. for OPEC Plus to pump more lower fuel prices and help the global economy. The Energy Alliance recently hinted it could impose deeper output cuts to spur a recovery in crude prices. This signals came despite a report that the Wall Street Journal suggesting an output increase of 500,000 barrels per day was under discussion for Sunday. Speaking earlier this week, RBC Capital Markets said that there's no exceptions of a production increase from the upcoming OPEC plus meeting and a significant chance of a deeper output cut. Okay. This is my opinion. Okay. And, and I, I'm a firm believer of this. They're probably going to cut oil prices and all honestly. Okay. If this price cap happens in Europe and I'm hoping I might have to do a second segment today. If there is an announcement on it, I'm not hundred percent sure. I don't know when that announcement's coming from the EU, but if it does happen, there's going to be a high probability that they're going to make cuts. And all honestly, okay, OPEC Plus is going to want to make as much money as possible. And by taking away a lot of the supply, there'll be a lot of demand, which means they make more money, okay? Here's another thing, too, which I don't get, okay? If the EU does decide to put a price cap, okay, what's to say Russia doesn't end up just selling the oil to another nation? Because this is already happening, Okay. To a China and India or a Saudi Arabia or some other country, they sell their oil there. It gets refined because we talked about this in a a podcast a day or two ago. It gets refined in that country and then it's no longer Russian oil. It's considered another country's oil because it's been refined. Or who's to say they just don't sell the oil to another country and then the country decides, you know what, we're going to sell this oil to this country instead. At the end of the day, Russian oil is still getting out there in the market, okay? So what happens? Remember, a few years back, Donald Trump said that Europe was too reliant on Russian oil. And they laughed at him. They did. There's video of it, too. And now we have a world where 
we're having to feel the pain as normal everyday people. We feel it at the pump. Now, there's probably other factors too. There always is other factors as well. You can't always blame everything on politicians. But for the most part, decisions that get do get made in Washington and across the world eventually do affect the average citizen. I'm telling you, my opinion though, price cuts are coming. OPEC's going to make a production cut. And don't be surprised if President Joe Biden, at least for us here in the United States, comes out and says... It's the wrong decisions, and he's going to try to look as tough as possible. But in reality, the average American's going to keep feeling it at the pump. So it's going to be a really, really hard day in the making soon for the average American soon. I expect there will be articles soon about how the average American is spending more on fuel soon. What I also want to know is this, too. Why can't the United States drill more? And that's a question I think a lot of people need to be asking themselves more. Why can't we drill more? Why can't we flood the market? Why does it have to be OPEC plus? Why can't the United States flood the market and cause prices to drop? Why can't we flood it? And all honestly, we should be drilling a lot more if we really want to get gas prices to go down. But that's an argument for another day. So I'll leave it there. With that being said, thank you so much for today's podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have, please like and subscribe to this podcast. If you like and subscription helps grow this podcast, and we'll be able to keep talking about events that Wall Street isn't or willing to be able to talk about. Please also note too, fellow podcast listeners, that if you continue to share this podcast, we continue to grow. I have to thank my current podcast listeners who continue to share this podcast because we are growing. And I love that we are growing right now because it gives me motivation every day to be able to keep reporting, to be able to see it keep growing. Thank you so much for my strong follow listeners. Keep sharing this podcast, getting the news out there so we can get the word out there. Please also like and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, as some of you who do listen to this podcast are not subscribed just yet. And it would be nice to continue to see you be able to keep listening to our podcast and not miss a single episode that comes out when we need to talk about. So thank you so much for today's podcast today. Thank you and goodbye.